0: This month is all Edgar Allan Poe on Blacklock Audio Tales. Up first, Edgar Allan Poe. Death of Edgar Allan Poe. The Unparalleled Adventures of One Hand's Flau, The Gold Bug. Four Beasts in One. The Homo Camel Leopard. Murders in the Rue Morgue. The Mystery of Mary Roget. The Balloon Hoax. Miss Found in a Bottle. The Oval Portrait. Blacklock Audio Tales is brought to you by BunnySlippers.com and FoundItemClothing.com. It's still cold outside in a lot of places. Why don't you get some of those Dino Sound Slippers? Walk around, make Dino Sounds. It's super fun. Be a clown. Get some of those cool t-shirts that they have all around at founditemclothing.com. look like your favorite cool guy from your favorite 80s movie. Or maybe a bad guy from an 80s movie if that's your thing too. Or just, do you like t-shirts that celebrate cult films from the 80s and 90s? founditemclothing.com you should go with them and while we're talking about people a quick shout out to monster kid radio monster kid radio google it search for it online uh zach ferguson look for the show notes for articulate warbling a podcast i produce let's see what else um search for twisted pulp radio i think it is what it's called And Twisted Pulp Radio, Twisted Pulp Show, anyway, it's a pulp radio show produced out of some radio station in California, and I lend some voice talents to that occasionally. Okay, what else do we have in the show notes? Dave's Corner of the Universe. Check out Dave's Corner of the Universe by just simply searching for Dave's Corner of the Universe. There's no other Dave's Corners of the Universe out there. And also, listen for Dave's little specials here and there on Black Clock Audio Tales, and also Dave's Underground Goat Shenanigans, which just had a Christmas special drop. And hopefully, we'll have its episode one happen within the month of January. So, we'll see when all that happens. It's going to be super cool and also don't forget to follow black clock audio tales on social media just look for pgttcm that's the website pgttcm.com for people's guide to the cthulhu mythos R monthly cthulhu mythos show that oh unfortunately we just had a reading last month but hey this month we're gonna go back to having an episode and also let's not forget that you can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at PGTTCM, or look for Black Clock Audio Tales if that doesn't work. And let's not forget, you are wonderful, and I think you're great. Okay.
1: Black Clock Audio Tales tales, 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 tales.
2: Recording by Sandy Gunther. The works of Edgar Allan Poe, Raven Edition, Volume 1. The Unparalleled Adventures of One Hans Fall. By late accounts from Rotterdam, that city seems to be in a high state of philosophical excitement. Indeed, phenomena have there occurred of a nature so completely unexpected, so entirely novel so utterly at variance with preconceived opinions as to leave no doubt on my mind that long ere this, all Europe is in an uproar, all physics in a ferment, all reason and astronomy together by the ears. It appears that on the blank day of blank, I am not positive about the date. A vast crowd of people, for purposes not specifically mentioned, were assembled in the great square of the Exchange in the well-conditioned city of Rotterdam. The day was warm, unusually so for the season. There was hardly a breath of air stirring, and the multitude were in no bad humor at being now and then besprinkled with friendly showers of momentary duration that fell from large white masses of cloud, which checkered in a fitful manner the blue vault of the firmament. Nevertheless, about noon, a slight but remarkable agitation became apparent in the assembly. The clattering of ten thousand tongues succeeded, and in an instant afterward, ten thousand faces were upturned toward the heavens, ten thousand pipes descended simultaneously from the corners of ten thousand mouths, and a shout, which could be compared to nothing but the roaring of Niagara, resounded long loudly and furiously through all the environs of Rotterdam. The origin of this hubbub soon became sufficiently evident. From behind the huge bulk of one of those sharply defined masses of cloud already mentioned was seen slowly to emerge into an open area of blue space, a queer, heterogeneous, but apparently solid substance, so oddly shaped, so whimsically put together, as not to be in any manner comprehended, and never to be sufficiently admired, by the host of sturdy burghers who stood open-mouthed below. What could it be? In the name of all the vrows and devils in Rotterdam, what could it possibly portend? No one knew. No one could imagine. No one, not even the burgeon-master Superbus von Underduck had the slightest clue by which to unravel the mystery, so, as nothing more reasonable could be done, every one to a man replaced his pipe carefully in the corner of his mouth, and cocking up his right eye towards the phenomenon, puffed, paused, waddled about, and grunted significantly, then waddled back, grunted, paused, and finally puffed again. In the meantime, however, lower and still lower toward the goodly city came the object of so much curiosity and the cause of so much smoke. In a very few minutes it arrived near enough to be accurately discerned. It appeared to be, yes, it was undoubtedly a species of balloon, but surely no such balloon had ever been seen in Rotterdam before. For who, let me ask? ever heard of a balloon manufactured entirely of dirty newspapers. No man in Holland, certainly, yet here under the very noses of the people, or rather at some distance above their noses, was the identical thing in question, and composed, I have it on the best authority, of the precise material which no one had ever before known to be used for a similar purpose. It was an egregious insult to the good sense of the burghers of Rotterdam. As to the shape of the phenomenon, it was even still more reprehensible, being little or nothing better than a huge fool's cap turned upside down. And this similitude was regarded as by no means lessened when, upon nearer inspection, there was perceived a large tassel depending from its apex, and around the upper rim or base of the cone, a circle of little instruments resembling sheep bells, which kept up a continual tinkling to the tune of Betty Martin. But still worse, suspended by blue ribbons to the end of this fantastic machine, there hung by way of car an enormous drab beaver hat, with a brim superlatively broad, and a hemispherical crown with a black band and a silver buckle. It is, however, somewhat remarkable that many citizens of Rotterdam swore to having seen the same hat repeatedly before. And indeed the whole assembly seemed to regard it with eyes of familiarity, while the Frau Gretel Fall, upon sight of it, uttered an exclamation of joyful surprise, and declared it to be the identical hat of her good man himself. Now this was a circumstance the more to be observed, as Fall, with three companions, had actually disappeared from Rotterdam about five years before, in a very sudden and unaccountable manner and up to the date of this narrative all attempts had failed of obtaining any intelligence concerning them whatsoever. To be sure some bones, which were thought to be human, mixed up with a quantity of odd-looking rubbish, had been lately discovered in a retired situation to the east of Rotterdam, and some people went so far as to imagine that in this spot a foul murder had been committed, and that the sufferers were in all probability Hans Fall and his associates, but to return. The balloon, for such no doubt it was, had now descended to within a hundred feet of the earth, allowing the crowd below a sufficiently distinct view of the person of its occupant. This was in truth a very droll little somebody. He could not have been more than two feet in height, but this altitude, little as it was, would have been sufficient to destroy his equilibrium and tilt him over the edge of his tiny car, but for the intervention of a circular rim reaching as high as the breast, and rigged onto the cords of the balloon. The body of the little man was more than proportionately broad, giving to his entire figure a rotundity highly absurd. His feet, of course, could not be seen at all, although a horny substance of a suspicious nature was occasionally protruded through a rent in the bottom of the car, or, to speak more properly, in the top of the hat. His hands were enormously large, his hair was extremely gray and collected in a queue behind. His nose was prodigiously long, crooked and inflammatory, his eyes full, brilliant and acute. His chin and cheeks, although wrinkled with age, were broad, puffy, and double. But ears of any kind or character there was not a semblance to be discovered upon any portion of his head. This odd little gentleman was dressed in a loose surtout of sky-blue satin, with tight breeches to match, fastened with silver buckles at the knees. His vest was of some bright yellow material, a white taffety cap was set jauntily on one side of his head, and to complete his equipment, a blood-red silk handkerchief enveloped his throat and fell down in a dainty manner upon his bosom, in a fantastic bow-knot of super-eminent dimensions." having descended as i said before to about one hundred feet from the surface of the earth the little old gentleman was suddenly seized with a fit of trepidation and appeared disinclined to make any nearer approach to terra firma throwing out therefore a quantity of sand from a canvas bag which he lifted with great difficulty he became stationary in an instant he then proceeded in a hurried and agitated manner to extract from a side pocket in his surtout a large morocco pocket-book. This he poised suspiciously in his hand, then eyed it with an air of extreme surprise, and was evidently astonished at its weight. He at length opened it, and drawing therefrom a huge letter sealed with red sealing-wax and tied carefully with red tape, let it fall precisely at the feet of the burgomaster, Superbus von Underduck. His Excellency stooped to take it up. But the aeronaut, still greatly discomposed, and having apparently no farther business to detain him in Rotterdam, began at this moment to make busy preparations for departure. And it being necessary to discharge a portion of ballast to enable him to reascend, the half dozen bags which he threw out one after another without taking the trouble to empty their contents, tumbled every one of them, most unfortunately, upon the back of the burgomaster, and rolled him over and over no less than one hundred and twenty times in the face of every man in Rotterdam. It is not to be supposed, however, that the great underduck suffered this impertinence on the part of the little old man to pass off with impunity. It is said, on the contrary, that during each and every one of his one-and-twenty circumvolutions he emitted no less than one-and-twenty distinct and furious whiffs from his pipe, to which he held fast the whole time with all his might, and to which he intends holding fast until the day of his death. In the meantime the balloon arose like a lark, and soaring far away above the city, at length drifted quietly behind a cloud similar to that from which it had so oddly emerged, and was thus lost for ever to the wondering eyes of the good citizens of Rotterdam. All attention was now directed to the letter, the descent of which, and the consequences attending thereupon, had proved so fatally subversive of both person and personal dignity to His Excellency, the illustrious Burja Master, Superbus von Underduck that functionary however had not failed during his circumgiratory movements to bestow a thought upon the important subject of securing the packet in question which was seen upon inspection to have fallen into the most proper hands being actually addressed to himself and professor Rubadub in their official capacities of president and vice president of the rotterdam college of astronomy it was accordingly opened by those dignitaries upon the spot and found to contain the following extraordinary and indeed very serious communications to their excellencies von underduck and rub president and vice-president of the state's college of astronomers in the city of rotterdam your excellencies may perhaps be able to remember a humble artisan by name hans fall and by occupation a mender of bellows who with three others disappeared from rotterdam about five years ago In a manner which must have been considered by all parties at once sudden and extremely unaccountable. If, however, it so please Your Excellencies, I, the writer of this communication, am the identical Hans Fall himself. It is well known to most of my fellow citizens that for the period of forty years I continued to occupy the little square brick building at the head of the alley called Sauerkraut, in which I resided at the time of my disappearance. My ancestors have also resided therein time out of mind, they as well as myself steadily following the respectable and indeed lucrative profession of mending of bellows. For to speak the truth until of late, that the heads of all the people have been set agog with politics, no better business than my own could an honest citizen of Rotterdam either desire or deserve. Credit was good. Employment was never wanting and on all hands there was no lack of either money or goodwill, But, as I was saying, we soon began to feel the effects of liberty and long speeches and radicalism and all that sort of thing. People who were formerly the very best customers in the world had now not a moment of time to think of us at all. They had, so they said, as much as they could do to read about the revolutions and keep up with the march of intellect and the spirit of the age. If a fire wanted fanning, it could readily be fanned with a newspaper, and as the government grew weaker I have no doubt that leather and iron acquired durability in proportion, for in a very short time there was not a pair of bellows in all Rotterdam that ever stood in need of a stitch or required the assistance of a hammer. This was a state of things not to be endured. I soon grew as poor as a rat. And having a wife and children to provide for, my burdens at length became intolerable, and I spent hour after hour in reflecting upon the most convenient method of putting an end to my life. Duns, in the meantime, left me little leisure for contemplation. My house was literally besieged from morning till night, so that I began to rave and foam and fret like a caged tiger against the bars of his enclosure. There were three fellows in particular who worried me beyond endurance keeping watch continually about my door and threatening me with the law upon these three i internally vowed the bitterest revenge if ever i should be so happy as to get them within my clutches and i believe nothing in the world but the pleasure of this anticipation prevented me from putting my plan of suicide into immediate execution by blowing my brains out with a blunderbuss I thought it best, however, to dissemble my wrath, and to treat them with promises and fair words, until by some good turn of fate an opportunity of vengeance should be afforded me. One day, having given my creditors the slip and feeling more than usually dejected, I continued for a long time to wander about the most obscure streets without object whatever, until at length I chanced to stumble against the corner of a bookseller's stall. Seeing a chair close at hand for the use of customers, I threw myself doggedly into it, and hardly knowing why opened the pages of the first volume which came within my reach. It proved to be a small pamphlet treatise on speculative astronomy, written either by Professor Encke of Berlin or by a Frenchman of somewhat similar name. I had some little tincture of information on matters of this nature and soon became more and more absorbed in the contents of the book, reading it actually through twice before I woke to a recollection of what was passing around me. By this time it began to grow dark, and I directed my steps toward home. But the treatise had made an indelible impression on my mind, and as I sauntered along the dusky streets, I revolved carefully over in my memory the wild and sometimes unintelligible reasonings of the writer. There are some particular passages which affected my imagination in a powerful and extraordinary manner. The longer I meditated upon these the more intense grew the interest which had been excited within me. The limited nature of my education in general, and more especially my ignorance on subjects connected with natural philosophy so far from rendering me diffident of my own ability to comprehend what I had read, or inducing me to mistrust the many vague notions which had arisen in consequence, merely served as a farther stimulus to imagination. And I was vain enough, or perhaps reasonable enough, to doubt whether those crude ideas which, arising in ill-regulated minds, have all the appearance, may not often in effect possess all the force the reality and other inherent properties of instinct or intuition. Whether to proceed a step farther, profundity itself might not, in matters of a purely speculative nature, be detected as a legitimate source of falsity and error. In other words, I believed and still do believe that truth is frequently of its own essence superficial, and that in many cases, The depth lies more in the abysses where we seek her than in the actual situations wherein she may be found. Nature herself seemed to afford me corroboration of these ideas. In the contemplation of the heavenly bodies it struck me forcibly that I could not distinguish a star with nearly as much precision when I gazed on it with earnest, direct, and undeviating attention as when I suffered my eye only to glance in its vicinity alone. I was not, of course, at that time aware that this apparent paradox was occasioned by the center of the visual area being less susceptible of feeble impressions of light than the exterior portions of the retina. This knowledge, and some of another kind, came afterwards in the course of an eventful five years during which I have dropped the prejudices of my former humble situation in life, and forgotten the bellows-mender in far different occupations. But at the epoch of which I speak the analogy which a casual observation of a star offered to the conclusions I had already drawn struck me with the force of positive confirmation, and I then finally made up my mind to the course which I afterwards pursued. It was late when I reached home, and I went immediately to bed. My mind, however, was too much occupied to sleep, and I lay the whole night buried in meditation. Arising early in the morning and contriving again to escape the vigilance of my creditors, I repaired eagerly to the bookseller's stall and laid out what little ready money I possessed in the purchase of some volumes of mechanics and practical astronomy. Having arrived at home safely with these, I devoted every spare moment to their perusal, and soon made such proficiency in studies of this nature as I thought sufficient for the execution of my plan. In the intervals of this period I made every endeavor to conciliate the three creditors who had given me so much annoyance. In this I finally succeeded, partly by selling enough of my household furniture to satisfy a moiety of their claim and partly by a promise of paying the balance upon completion of a little project which I told them I had in view, and for assistance in which I solicited their services. By these means, for they were ignorant men, I found little difficulty in gaining them over to my purpose. Matters being thus arranged, I contrived by the aid of my wife, and with the greatest secrecy and caution, to dispose of what property I had remaining and to borrow in small sums under various pretenses, and without paying any attention to my future means of repayment, no inconsiderable quantity of ready money. With the means thus accruing, I proceeded to procure at intervals cambric muslin, very fine, in pieces of twelve yards each, twine, a lot of the varnish of caoutchouc a large and deep basket of wicker work, made to order and several other articles necessary in the construction and equipment of a balloon of extraordinary dimensions. This I directed my wife to make up as soon as possible and gave her all requisite information as to the particular method of proceeding. In the meantime I worked up the twine into a network of sufficient dimensions, rigged it with a hoop and the necessary cords, bought a quadrant, a compass, a spyglass, a common barometer with some important modifications and two astronomical instruments not so generally known. I then took opportunities of conveying by night to a retired situation east of Rotterdam five iron-bound casks to contain about fifty gallons each and one of a larger size, six tinned ware tubes three inches in diameter, properly shaped and ten feet in length, a quantity of a particular metallic substance or semi-metal which I shall not name, and a dozen demijohns of a very common acid. The gas to be formed from these latter materials is a gas never yet generated by any other person than myself, or at least never applied to any similar purpose. The secret I would make no difficulty in disclosing, but that it of right belongs to a citizen of Nans in France by whom I was conditionally communicated to myself. The same individual submitted to me, without being at all aware of my intentions, a method of constructing balloons from the membrane of a certain animal through which substance any escape of gas was nearly an impossibility. I found it, however, altogether too expensive and was not sure, upon the whole, whether cambric muslin, with a coating of gum caoutchouc was not equally as good. I mention this circumstance because I think it probable that hereafter the individual in question may attempt a balloon ascension with the novel gas and material I have spoken of, and I do not wish to deprive him of the honor of a very singular invention. On the spot which I intended each of the smaller casks to occupy respectively during the inflation of the balloon, I privately dug a hole two feet deep, the holes forming in this manner a circle twenty-five feet in diameter. In the center of this circle, being the station designed for the large cask, I also dug a hole three feet in depth. In each of the five smaller holes I deposited a canister containing fifty pounds, and in the larger one a keg holding one hundred fifty pounds of cannon powder. These, the keg and canisters, I connected in a proper manner with covered trains, and having let into one of the canisters the end of about four feet of slow match, I covered up the hole and placed the cask over it, leaving the other end of the match protruding about an inch and barely visible beyond the cask. I then filled up the remaining holes and placed the barrels over them in their destined situation. Besides the articles above enumerated, I conveyed to the depot and there secreted one of M. Grimm's improvements upon the apparatus for condensation of the atmospheric air. I found this machine, however, to require considerable alteration before it could be adapted to the purposes to which I intended making it applicable. But with severe labor and unremitting perseverance, I at length met with entire success in all my preparations. My balloon was soon completed. It would contain more than 40,000 cubic feet of gas. Would take me up easily, I calculated, with all my implements and, if I managed rightly, with 175 pounds of ballast into the bargain. It had received three coats of varnish, and I found the cambric muslin to answer all the purposes of silk itself quite as strong and a good deal less expensive. Everything being now ready, I exacted from my wife an oath of secrecy in relation to all my actions from the day of my first visit to the bookseller's stall. And promising on my part to return as soon as circumstances would permit, I gave her what little money I had left and bade her farewell. Indeed I had no fear on her account. She was what people call a notable woman, and could manage matters in the world without my assistance. I believe, to tell the truth, she always looked upon me as an idle boy, a mere make-weight, good for nothing but building castles in the air and was rather glad to get rid of me. It was a dark night when I bade her good-bye, and taking with me, as aides de camp, the three creditors who had given me so much trouble, we carried the balloon with the car and accoutrements by a roundabout way to the station where the other articles were deposited. We there found them all unmolested, and I proceeded immediately to business. It was the first of April. The night, as I said before, was dark. There was not a star to be seen, and a drizzling rain falling at intervals rendered us very uncomfortable. But my chief anxiety was concerning the balloon, which, in spite of the varnish with which it was defended, began to grow rather heavy with the moisture. The powder also was liable to damage. I therefore kept my three duns working with great diligence, pounding down ice around the central cask, and stirring the acid in the others. They did not cease, however, importuning me with questions as to what I intended to do with all this apparatus, and expressed much dissatisfaction at the terrible labor I made them undergo. They could not perceive, so they said, what good was likely to result from their getting wet to the skin, merely to take part in such horrible incantations. I began to get uneasy and worked away with all my might. For I verily believed the idiots supposed that I had entered into a compact with the devil, and that, in short, what I was now doing was nothing better than it should be. I was therefore in great fear of their leaving me altogether. I contrived, however, to pacify them by promises of payment of all scores in full, as soon as I could bring the present business to a termination. To these speeches they gave, of course, their own interpretation. Fancying no doubt that at all events I should come into possession of vast quantities of ready money, and provided I paid them all I owed, and a trifle more in consideration of their services, I dare say they cared very little what became of either my soul or my carcass. In about four hours and a half I found the balloon sufficiently inflated. I attached the car, therefore, and put all my implements in it not forgetting the condensing apparatus, a copious supply of water, and a large quantity of provisions, such as pemmican, in which much nutriment is contained in comparatively little bulk. I also secured in the car a pair of pigeons and a cat. It was now nearly daybreak, and I thought it high time to take my departure. Dropping a lighted cigar on the ground, as if by accident, I took the opportunity in stooping to pick it up, of igniting privately the piece of slow match whose end, as I said before, protruded a very little beyond the lower rim of one of the smaller casks. This maneuver was totally unperceived on the part of the three duns, and jumping into the car I immediately cut the single cord which held me to the earth, and was pleased to find that I shot upward, carrying with all ease one hundred and seventy-five pounds of leaden ballast and able to have carried up as many more. Scarcely, however, had I attained the height of fifty yards, when roaring and rumbling up after me in the most horrible and tumultuous manner came so dense a hurricane of fire and smoke and sulphur and legs and arms and gravel and burning wood and blazing metal, that my very heart sunk within me, and I fell down in the bottom of the car trembling with unmitigated terror. Indeed I now perceived that I had entirely overdone the business, and that the main consequences of the shock were yet to be experienced. Accordingly in less than a second I felt all the blood in my body rushing to my temples, and immediately thereupon a concussion which I shall never forget burst abruptly through the night and seemed to rip the very firmament asunder. When I afterward had time for reflection, I did not fail to attribute the extreme violence of the explosion, as regarded myself, to its proper cause, my situation directly above it and in the line of its greatest power. But at the time I thought only of preserving my life. The balloon at first collapsed, then furiously expanded, then whirled round and round with horrible velocity. And finally, reeling and staggering like a drunken man, hurled me with great force over the rim of the car, and left me dangling at a terrific height, with my head downward, and my face outwards, by a piece of slender cord about three feet in length, which hung accidentally through a crevice near the bottom of the wickerwork, and in which, as I fell, my left foot became providentially entangled. It is impossible utterly impossible to form any adequate idea of the horror of my situation. I gasped convulsively for breaths. A shudder resembling a fit of the ague agitated every nerve and muscle of my frame. I felt my eyes starting from their sockets. A horrible nausea overwhelmed me, and at length I fainted away. How long I remained in this state it is impossible to say. It must, however, have been no inconsiderable time, for when I partially recovered the sense of existence, I found the day breaking, the balloon at a prodigious height over a wilderness of ocean, and not a trace of land to be discovered far and wide within the limits of the vast horizon. My sensations, however, upon thus recovering, were by no means so rife with agony as might have been anticipated. Indeed there was much of incipient madness in the calm survey which I began to take of my situation. I drew up to my eyes each of my hands one after the other, and wondered what occurrence could have given rise to the swelling of the veins and the horrible blackness of the finger-nails. I afterward carefully examined my head, shaking it repeatedly and feeling it with minute attention, until I succeeded in satisfying myself that it was not as I had more than half suspected, larger than my balloon. Then in a an annoying manner I felt in both my breeches pockets, and missing therefrom a set of tablets and a toothpick case, endeavored to account for their disappearance, and not being able to do so, felt inexpressibly chagrined. It now occurred to me that I suffered great uneasiness in the joint of my left ankle, and a dim consciousness of my situation began to glimmer through my mind. But strange to say I was neither astonished nor horror-stricken. If I felt any emotion at all, it was a kind of chuckling satisfaction at the cleverness I was about to display in extricating myself from this dilemma, and I never for a moment looked upon my ultimate safety as a question susceptible of doubt. For a few minutes I remained wrapped in the profoundest meditation. I have a distinct recollection of frequently compressing my lips, putting my forefinger to the side of my nose, and making use of other gesticulations and grimaces common to men who, at ease in their armchairs, meditate upon matters of intricacy or importance. Having as I thought sufficiently collected my ideas, I now with great caution and deliberation put my hands behind my back and unfastened the large iron buckle which belonged to the waistband of my inexpressibles. This buckle had three teeth, which, being somewhat rusty, turned with great difficulty on their axis. I brought them, however, after some trouble, at right angles to the body of the buckle, and was glad to find them remained firm in that position. Holding the instrument thus obtained within my teeth, I now proceeded to untie the knot of my cravat. I had to rest several times before I could accomplish this maneuver, but it was at length accomplished. To one end of the cravat I then made fast the buckle, and the other end I tied for greater security tightly around my wrist. Drawing now my body upwards with a prodigious exertion of muscular force, I succeeded at the very first trial in throwing the buckle over the car and entangling it, as I had anticipated, in the circular rim of the wickerwork, My body was now inclined towards the side of the car, at an angle of about forty-five degrees, but it must not be understood that I was therefore only forty-five degrees below the perpendicular. So far from it, I still lay nearly level with the plane of the horizon for the change of situation which I had acquired had forced the bottom of the car considerably outwards from my position, which was accordingly one of the most imminent and deadly peril. It should be remembered, however, that when I fell in the first instance from the car, if I had fallen with my face turned toward the balloon instead of turned outwardly from it as it actually was, or if, in the second place, The cord by which I was suspended had chanced to hang over the upper edge instead of through a crevice near the bottom of the car. I say it may be readily conceived that in either of these supposed cases I should have been unable to accomplish even as much as I had now accomplished, and the wonderful adventures of Hans Fall would have been utterly lost to posterity. I had, therefore every reason to be grateful, although in point of fact I was too stupid to be anything at all, and hung for perhaps a quarter of an hour in that extraordinary manner, without making the slightest farther exertion whatsoever, and in a singularly tranquil state of idiotic enjoyment. But this feeling did not fail to die rapidly away, and thereunto succeeded horror and dismay and a chilling sense of utter helplessness and ruin. In fact, the blood so long accumulating in the vessels of my head and throat, and which had hitherto buoyed up my spirits with madness and delirium, had now begun to retire within their proper channels, and the distinctness which was thus added to my perception of the danger merely served to deprive me of the self-possession and courage to encounter it. But this weakness was luckily for me of no very long duration. In good time came to my rescue the spirit of despair, and with frantic cries and struggles I jerked my way bodily upwards, till at length, clutching with a vice-like grip the long-desired rim, I writhed my person over it and fell headlong and shuddering within the car. It was not until some time afterward that I recovered myself sufficiently to attend to the ordinary cares of the balloon. I then, however, examined it with attention and found it, to my great relief, uninjured. My implements were all safe, and fortunately I had lost neither ballast nor provisions. Indeed I had so well secured them in their places that such an accident was entirely out of the question. Looking at my watch I found it six o'clock. I was still rapidly ascending, and my barometer gave a present altitude of three and three-quarter miles. Immediately beneath me in the ocean lay a small black object, slightly oblong in shape, seemingly about the size and in every way bearing a great resemblance to one of those childish toys called a domino. Bringing my telescope to bear upon it, I plainly discerned it to be a British 94 gun ship, close hauled and pitching heavily in the sea, with her head to the west southwest. Besides this ship I saw nothing but the ocean and the sky and the sun which had long arisen. It is now high time that I should explain to Your Excellencies the object of my perilous voyage. Your Excellencies will bear in mind that distressed circumstances in Rotterdam had at length driven me to the resolution of committing suicide. It was not, however, that to life itself I had any positive disgust, but that I was harassed beyond endurance by the adventitious miseries attending my situation. In this state of mind, wishing to live yet wearied with life, the treatise at the stall of the bookseller opened a resource to my imagination. I then finally made up my mind. I determined to depart yet live, to leave the world yet continue to exist. In short, to drop enigmas, I resolved let what would ensue to force a passage, if I could, to the moon. Now, lest I should be supposed more of a madman than I actually am, I will detail as well as I am able the considerations which led me to believe that an achievement of this nature, although without doubt difficult and incontestably full of danger, was not absolutely to a bold spirit beyond the confines of the possible. End of the Unparalleled Adventures of One Hans Fall, Part One. Recording by Sandy Gunther.
1: Recording by Dale Hodge. The Works of Edgar Allan Poe, Raven Edition, Volume 1. The moon's actual distance from the Earth was the first thing to be attended to. Now the mean or average interval between the centers of the two planets is 59.9643 of the Earth's equatorial radii, or about 237,000 miles. I say the mean or average interval, but it must be borne in mind that the form of the moon's orbit being an ellipse of eccentricity amounting to no less than 0.05484 of the major semi-axis of the ellipse itself, and the earth's center being situated in its focus, if I could in any manner contrive to meet the moon, as it were, in its perigee, the above-mentioned distance would be materially diminished. But to say nothing at present of this possibility, it was very certain that, at all events, From the 237,000 miles, I would have to deduct the radius of the earth, say 4,000, and the radius of the moon, say 1,080, in all 5,080, leaving an actual interval to be traversed under average circumstances of 231,920 miles. Now this, I reflected, was no very extraordinary distance. Traveling on land has been repeatedly accomplished at the rate of 30 miles per hour, and indeed a much greater speed may be anticipated, but even at this velocity it would take me no more than 322 days to reach the surface of the moon. There were, however, many particulars inducing me to believe that my average rate of traveling might possibly very much exceed that of 30 miles per hour. and as these considerations did not fail to make a deep impression upon my mind, I will mention them more fully hereafter. The next point to be regarded was a matter of far greater importance. From indications afforded by the barometer, we find that, in ascensions from the surface of the earth, we have, at the height of 1,000 feet, left below us about 1 of the entire mass of atmospheric air that at 10,600 we have ascended through nearly one third and that at 18,000 which is not far from the elevation of Cotopaxi we have surmounted one half the material or at all events one half the ponderable body of air incumbent upon our globe. It is also calculated that at an altitude not exceeding the hundredth part of the earth's diameter that is not exceeding 80 miles the rarefication would be so excessive that animal life could in no manner be sustained, and, moreover, that the most delicate means we possess of ascertaining the presence of the atmosphere would be inadequate to assure us of its existence. But I did not fail to perceive that these latter calculations are founded altogether on our experimental knowledge of the properties of air, and the mechanical laws regulating its dilation, and compression, in what may be called, comparatively speaking, the immediate vicinity of the earth itself. And, at the same time, it is taken for granted that animal life is, and must be, essentially incapable of modification at any given unattainable distance from the surface. Now all such reasoning, and from such data, must, of course, be simply analogical. The greatest height ever reached by man was that of 25,000 feet attained in the aeronautic expedition of Messrs Guy-Lussac and Biot. This is a moderate altitude even when compared with the 80 miles in question, and I could not help thinking that the subject admitted room for doubt and great latitude for speculation. But, in point of fact, an ascension being made to any given altitude, the ponderable quantity of air surmounted in any farther ascension is by no means in proportion to the additional height ascended, as may be plainly seen from what has been stated before, but in a ratio constantly decreasing. It is therefore evident that, ascend as high as we may, we cannot literally speaking arrive at a limit beyond which no atmosphere is to be found. It must exist, I argued although it may exist in a state of infinite rarification. On the other hand, I was aware that arguments have not been wanting to prove the existence of a real and definite limit to the atmosphere, beyond which there is absolutely no air whatsoever. But a circumstance which has been left out of view by those who contend for such a limit, seemed to me, although no positive refutation of their creed, still a point worthy very serious investigation on comparing the intervals between the successive arrivals of Encke's comet at its perihelion, after giving credit in the most exact manner for all the disturbances due to the attractions of the planets, it appears that the periods are gradually diminishing. That is to say, the major axis of the comet's ellipse is growing shorter in a slow but perfectly regular decrease. Now this is precisely what ought to be the case, if we suppose a resistance experienced from the comet from an extremely rare ethereal medium pervading the regions of its orbit. For it is evident that such a medium must, in retarding the comet's velocity, increase its centripetal by weakening its centrifugal force. In other words, the sun's attraction would be constantly attaining greater power, and the comet would be drawn nearer at every revolution. Indeed, there is no other way of accounting for the variation in question. But again, the real diameter of the same comet's nebulosity is observed to contract rapidly as it approaches the sun and dilate with equal rapidity in its departure toward its aphelion. Was I not justifiable in supposing with M. vols that this apparent condensation of volume has its origin in the compression of the same ethereal medium I have spoken of before, and which is only denser in proportion to its solar vicinity. The lenticular-shaped phenomenon, also called the zodiacal light, was a matter worthy of attention. This radiance, so apparent in the tropics, and which cannot be mistaken for any meteoric luster, extends from the horizon obliquely upward and follows generally the direction of the Sun's equator. It appeared to me evidently in the nature of a rare atmosphere extending from the Sun outward, beyond the orbit of Venus at least, and I believed indefinitely farther. Indeed, this medium I could not suppose confined to the path of the comet's ellipse, or to the immediate neighborhood of the Sun. It was easy, on the contrary, to imagine it pervading the entire regions of our planetary system condensed into what we call atmosphere at the planets themselves and perhaps at some of them modified by considerations, so to speak, purely geological. Having adopted this view of the subject, I had little further hesitation, granting that on my passage I should meet with atmosphere essentially the same as at the surface of the earth, I conceived that, by means of the very ingenious apparatus of M. Grimm, I should readily be enabled to condense it in sufficient quantity for the purposes of respiration. This would remove the chief obstacle in a journey to the moon. I had indeed spent some money and great labor in adapting the apparatus to the object intended, and confidently looked forward to its successful application. If I could manage to complete the voyage within any reasonable period. This brings me back to the rate at which it might be possible to travel. It is true that balloons, in the first stage of their ascensions from the Earth, are known to rise with a velocity comparatively moderate. Now the power of elevation lies altogether in the superior lightness of the gas in the balloon, compared with the atmospheric air. And, at first sight, it does not appear probable that, as the balloon acquires altitude, and consequently arrives successively in atmospheric strata of densities rapidly diminishing, I say it does not appear at all reasonable that, in this, its progress upwards, the original velocity should be accelerated. On the other hand, I was not aware that, in any recorded ascension, a diminution was apparent in the absolute rate of ascent, although said should have been the case, if on account of nothing else, on account of the escape of gas through balloons ill-constructed and varnished with no better material than the ordinary varnish. It seemed, therefore, that the effect of such escape was only sufficient to counterbalance the effect of some accelerating power. I now considered that, provided in my passage I found the medium I had imagined, and provided that it should prove to be actually and essentially what we denominate atmospheric air, it could make comparatively little difference at what extreme state of rarefication I should discover it. That is to say, in regard to my power of ascending, for the gas in the balloon would not only be itself subject to rarefaction partially similar in proportion to the occurrence of which I could suffer an escape of so much as would be requisite to prevent explosion. But, being what it was, would, at all events, continue specifically lighter than any compound whatever of mere nitrogen and oxygen. In the meantime, The force of gravitation would be constantly diminishing in proportion to the squares of the distances, and thus, with a velocity prodigiously accelerating, I should at length arrive in those distant regions where the force of the Earth's attraction would be superseded by that of the moon. In accordance with these ideas, I did not think it worthwhile to encumber myself with more provisions than would be sufficient for a period of 40 days. There was still, however, another difficulty which occasioned me some little disquietude. It has been observed that in balloon ascensions to any considerable height, besides the pain attending respiration, great uneasiness is experienced about the head and body, often accompanied with bleeding at the nose and other symptoms of an alarming kind and growing more and more inconvenient in proportion to the altitude attained. This was a reflection of a nature somewhat startling. Was it not probable that these symptoms would increase indefinitely, or at least until terminated by death itself? I finally thought not. Their origin was to be looked for in the progressive removal of the customary atmospheric pressure upon the surface of the body, and consequent distension of the superficial blood vessels, not in any positive disorganization of the animal system, as in the case of difficulty in breathing, where the atmospheric density is chemically insufficient for the due renovation of blood in a ventricle of the heart. Unless for default of this renovation, I could see no reason, therefore, why life could not be sustained even in a vacuum. For the expansion and compression of chest, commonly called breathing, is action purely muscular, and the cause, not the effect, of respiration. In a word, I conceived that as the body should become habituated to the want of atmospheric pressure, the sensations of pain would gradually diminish, and to endure them while they continued, I relied with confidence upon the iron hardihood of my constitution. Thus, may it please your excellencies, I have detailed some Though by no means all, the considerations which led me to form the project of a lunar voyage. I shall now proceed to lay before you the result of an attempt so apparently audacious in conception, and, at all events, so utterly unparalleled in the annals of mankind. Having attained the altitude before mentioned, that is to say, three miles and three quarters, I threw out from the car a quantity of feathers, and found that I still ascended with sufficient rapidity. There was, therefore, no necessity for discharging any ballast. I was glad of this, for I wished to retain with me as much weight as I could carry, for reasons which will be explained in the sequel. I as yet suffered no bodily inconvenience, breathing with great freedom and feeling no pain whatever in the head. The cat was lying very demurely upon my coat, which I had taken off, and eyeing the pigeons with an air of nonchalance these latter being tied by the leg to prevent their escape, were busily employed in picking up some grains of rice scattered for them in the bottom of the car. At 20 minutes past six o'clock, the barometer showed an elevation of 26,400 feet or five miles to a fraction. The prospect seemed unbounded. Indeed, it is very easily calculated by means of spherical geometry. What a great extent of the earth's area I beheld the convex surface of any segment of a sphere is, to the entire surface of the sphere itself, as the versed sign of the segment to the diameter of the sphere. Now, in my case, the versed sign, that is to say the thickness of the segment beneath me, was about equal to my elevation, or the elevation of the point of sight above the surface. As five miles then to 8,000 would express the proportion of the earth's area seen by me, In other words, I beheld as much as a 1,600th part of the whole surface of the globe. The sea appeared unruffled as a mirror, although by means of the spyglass, I could perceive it to be in a state of violent agitation. The ship was no longer visible, having drifted away, apparently to the eastward. I now began to experience, at intervals, severe pain in the head, especially about the ears, still, however, breathing with tolerable freedom. The cat and pigeons seemed to suffer no inconvenience whatsoever. At twenty minutes before seven, the balloon entered a long series of dense clouds which put me in great trouble by damaging my condensing apparatus and wetting me to the skin. This was, to be sure, a singular rencontre, for I had not believed it possible that a cloud of this nature could be sustained at so great an elevation. I thought it best, however to throw out two five-pound pieces of ballast, reserving still a weight of 165 pounds. Upon so doing, I soon rose above the difficulty and perceived immediately that I had obtained a great increase in my rate of ascent. In a few seconds after my leaving the cloud, a flash of vivid lightning shot from one end of it to the other and caused it to kindle up throughout its vast extent, like a mass of ignited and glowing charcoal. This, it must be remembered, was in the broad light of day. No fancy may picture the sublimity which might have been exhibited by a similar phenomenon taking place amid the darkness of the night. Hell itself might have been found a fitting image. Even as it was, my hair stood on end while I gazed afar down within the yawning abysses letting imagination descend, as it were, and stalk about in the strange vaulted halls and ruddy gulfs and red ghastly chasms of the hideous and unfathomable fire, I had indeed made a narrow escape. Had the balloon remained a very short while longer within the cloud, that is to say, had not the inconvenience of getting wet determined me to discharge the ballast, inevitable ruin would have been the consequence. Such perils, although little considered, are perhaps the greatest which must be encountered in balloons. I had, by this time, however, attained too great an elevation to be any longer uneasy on this head. I was now rising rapidly, and by seven o'clock the barometer indicated an altitude of no less than nine miles and a half. I began to find great difficulty in drawing my breath. My head, too, was excessively painful and, Having felt for some time a moisture about my cheeks, I at length discovered it to be blood, which was oozing quite fast from the drums of my ears. My eyes also gave me great uneasiness. Upon passing the hand over them, they seemed to have protruded from their sockets in no inconsiderable degree, and all objects in the car, and even the balloon itself, appeared distorted to my vision. These symptoms were more than I had expected, and occasioned me some alarm. At this juncture, very imprudently and without consideration, I threw out from the car three five-pound pieces of ballast. The accelerated rate of ascent thus obtained carried me too rapidly and without sufficient gradation into a highly rarefied stratum of the atmosphere, and the result had nearly proved fatal to my expedition and to myself. I was suddenly seized with a spasm which lasted for more than five minutes, and even when this, in a measure, ceased, I could catch my breath only at long intervals and in a gasping manner, bleeding all the while copiously at the nose and ears and even slightly at the eyes. The pigeons appeared distressed in the extreme and struggled to escape, while the cat mewed piteously and, with her tongue hanging out of her mouth, staggered to and fro in the car as if under the influence of poison. I now too late discovered the great rashness of which I had been guilty in discharging the ballast, and my agitation was excessive. I anticipated nothing less than death, and death in a few minutes. The physical suffering I underwent contributed also to render me nearly incapable of making any exertion for the preservation of my life. I had indeed little power of reflection left, and the violence of the pain in my head seemed to be greatly on the increase. Thus, I found that my senses would shortly give way altogether, and I had already clutched one of the valve ropes with the view of attempting a descent, when the recollection of the trick I had played the three creditors, and the possible consequences to myself should I return, operated to deter me for the moment. I lay down in the bottom of the car and endeavored to collect my faculties. In this, I so far succeeded as to determine upon the experiment of losing blood. Having no lancet, however, I was constrained to perform the operation in the best manner I was able, and finally succeeded in opening a vein in my right arm with the blade of my penknife. The blood had hardly commenced flowing when I experienced a sensible relief and, by the time I had lost about half a moderate basin full, most of the worst symptoms had abandoned me entirely. I nevertheless did not think it expedient to attempt getting on my feet immediately, but Having tied up my arm as well I could, I lay still for about a quarter of an hour. At the end of this time, I arose and found myself freer from absolute pain of any kind than I had been during the last hour and a quarter of my ascension. The difficulty of breathing, however, was diminished in a very slight degree, and I found that it would soon be positively necessary to make use of my condenser. In the meantime, looking toward the cat, who was again snugly stowed away upon my coat, I discovered, to my infinite surprise, that she had taken the opportunity of my indisposition to bring into light a litter of three little kittens. This was in addition to the number of passengers on my part altogether unexpected, but I was pleased at the occurrence. It would afford me a chance of bringing to a kind of test the truth of a surmise, which, more than anything else, had influenced me in attempting this ascension. I had imagined that the habitual endurance of the atmospheric pressure at the surface of the earth was the cause, or nearly so, of the pain attending animal existence at a distance above the surface. Should the kittens be found to suffer uneasiness in an equal degree with their mother, I must consider my theory in fault. But a failure to do so, I should look upon as a strong confirmation of my idea. By eight o'clock, I had actually attained an elevation of 17 miles above the surface of the earth. Thus, it seemed to me evident that my rate of ascent was not only on the increase, but that the progression would have been apparent in a slight degree even had I not discharged the ballast which I did. The pains in my head and ears returned at intervals with violence, and I still continued to bleed occasionally at the nose. But upon the whole, I suffered much less than might have been expected. I breathed, however, at every moment, with more and more difficulty, and each inhalation was attended with a troublesome spasmodic action of the chest. I now unpacked the condensing apparatus and got it ready for immediate use. The view of the earth at this period of my ascension was beautiful indeed. To the westward, the northward, and the southward, as far as I could see, lay a boundless sheet of apparently unruffled ocean, which every moment gained a deeper, and a deeper tint of blue, and began already to assume a slight appearance of convexity. At a vast distance to the eastward, although perfectly discernible, extended the islands of Great Britain, the entire Atlantic coasts of France and Spain, with a small portion of the northern part of the continent of Africa. Of individual edifices not a trace could be discovered, and the proudest cities of mankind had utterly faded away from the face of the earth from the rock of Gibraltar, now dwindled into a dim speck. The dark Mediterranean sea, dotted with shining islands as the heaven is dotted with stars, spread itself out to the eastward as far as my vision extended, until its entire mass of waters seemed at length to tumble headlong over the abyss of the horizon, and I found myself listening on tiptoe for the echoes of the mighty cataract. Overhead, the sky was of a jetty black and the stars were brilliantly visible. The pigeons about this time, seeming to undergo much suffering, I determined upon giving them their liberty. I first untied one of them, a beautiful gray-mottled pigeon, and placed him upon the rim of the wickerwork. He appeared extremely uneasy, looking anxiously around him, fluttering his wings and making a loud cooing noise, but could not be persuaded to trust himself from off the car. I took him up at last and threw him to about half a dozen yards from the balloon. He made, however, no attempt to descend as I had expected, but struggled with great vehemence to get back, uttering at the same time very shrill and piercing cries. He at length succeeded in regaining his former station on the rim, but had hardly done so when his head dropped upon his breast and he fell dead within the car. The other one did not prove so unfortunate. To prevent his following the example of his companion and accomplishing a return, I threw him downward with all my force, and was pleased to find him continue his descent with great velocity, making use of his wings with ease and in a perfectly natural manner. In a very short time he was out of sight, and I had no doubt he reached home in safety. Puss, who seemed in a great measure recovered from her illness, now made a hearty meal of the dead bird, and then went to sleep with much apparent satisfaction. Her kittens were quite lively, and so far evinced not the slightest sign of any uneasiness whatever. At a quarter past eight, being no longer able to draw breath without the most intolerable pain, I proceeded forthwith to adjust around the car the apparatus belonging to the condenser. This apparatus will require some little explanation and your excellencies will please to bear in mind that my object in the first place was to surround myself and cat entirely with a barricade against the highly rarefied atmosphere in which I was existing, with the intention of introducing within this barricade, by means of my condenser, a quantity of this same atmosphere sufficiently condensed for the purposes of respiration. With this object in view, I had prepared a very strong, perfectly airtight, but flexible, gum-elastic bag. In this bag, which was of sufficient dimensions, the entire car was in a manner placed. That is to say, it, the bag, was drawn over the whole bottom of the car, up its sides, and so on, along the outside of the ropes, to the upper rim or hoop where the network is attached. Having pulled the bag up in this way and formed a complete enclosure on all sides and at bottom, it was now necessary to fasten up its top or mouth by passing its material over the hoop of the network, in other words, between the network and the hoop. But if the network were separated from the hoop to admit this passage, what was to sustain the car in the meantime? Now the network was not permanently fastened to the hoop, but attached by a series of running loops or nooses. I therefore undid only a few of these loops at one time, leaving the car suspended by the remainder. Having thus inserted a portion of the cloth, forming the upper part of the bag, I refastened the loops. Not to the hoop, for that would have been impossible, since the cloth now intervened, but to a series of large buttons affixed to the cloth itself, about three feet below the mouth of the bag the intervals between the buttons having been made to correspond to the intervals between the loops. This done, a few more of the loops were unfastened from the rim, a farther portion of the cloth introduced, and the disengaged loops then connected with their proper buttons. In this way it was possible to insert the whole upper part of the bag between the network and the hoop. It is evident that the hoop would now drop down within the car while the whole weight of the car itself, with all its contents, would be held up merely by the strength of the buttons. This, at first sight, would seem an inadequate dependence, but it was by no means so, for the buttons were not only very strong in themselves, but so close together that a very slight portion of the whole weight was supported by any one of them. Indeed, had the car and contents been three times heavier than they were, I should not have been at all uneasy. I now raised up the hoop again within the covering of gum elastic and propped it at nearly its former height by means of three light poles prepared for the occasion. This was done, of course, to keep the bag distended at the top and to preserve the lower part of the net work in its proper situation. All that now remained was to fasten up the mouth of the enclosure and this was readily accomplished by gathering the folds of the material together and twisting them up very tightly on the inside by means of a kind of stationary tourniquet. In the sides of the covering thus adjusted round the car had been inserted three circular panes of thick but clear glass, through which I could see without difficulty around me in every horizontal direction. In that portion of the cloth forming the bottom was likewise a fourth window of the same kind and corresponding with a small aperture in the floor of the car itself. This enabled me to see perpendicularly down. But having found it impossible to place any similar contrivance overhead, on account of the peculiar manner of closing up the opening there and the consequent wrinkles in the cloth, I could expect to see no objects situated directly in my zenith. This, of course, was a matter of little consequence, for had I even been able to place a window at top, The balloon itself would have prevented my making any use of it. About a foot below one of the side windows was a circular opening, eight inches in diameter, and fitted with a brass rim adapted in its inner edge to the windings of a screw. In this rim was screwed the large tube of the condenser, the body of the machine being, of course, within the chamber of gum elastic. Through this tube, a quantity of the rare atmosphere circumjacent being drawn by means of a vacuum created in the body of the machine, was thence discharged in a state of condensation to mingle with the thin air already in the chamber. This operation, being repeated several times at length, filled the chamber with atmosphere proper for all the purposes of respiration, but in so confined a space it would, in a short time, necessarily become foul and unfit for use from frequent contact with the lungs. It was then ejected by a small valve at the bottom of the car, the dense air readily sinking into the thinner atmosphere below. To avoid the inconvenience of making a total vacuum at any moment within the chamber, this purification was never accomplished all at once, but in a gradual manner, the valve being opened only for a few seconds, then closed again until one or two strokes from the pump of the condenser had supplied the place of the atmosphere ejected. For the sake of experiment, I had put the cat and kittens in a small basket and suspended it outside the car to a button at the bottom, close by the valve, through which I could feed them at any moment when necessary. I did this at some little risk and before closing the mouth of the chamber by reaching under the car with one of the poles before mentioned to which a hook had been attached. By the time I had fully completed these arrangements and filled the chamber as explained, it wanted only ten minutes of nine o'clock. During the whole period of my being thus employed, I endured the most terrible distress from difficulty of respiration, and bitterly did I repent the negligence, or rather, foolhardiness of which I had been guilty, of putting off to the last moment a matter of so much importance. But having at length accomplished it, I soon began to reap the benefit of my invention. Once again, I breathed with perfect freedom and ease and indeed, why should I not? I was also agreeably surprised to find myself in a great measure relieved from the violent pains which had hitherto tormented me. A slight headache accompanied with the sensation of fullness or distension about the wrists, the ankles, and the throat was nearly all of which I had now to complain. Thus it seemed evident that a greater part of the uneasiness attending the removal of atmospheric pressure had actually worn off, as I had expected, And that much of the pain endured for the last two hours should have been attributed altogether to the effects of a deficient respiration. At twenty minutes before nine o'clock, that is to say, a short time prior to my closing up the mouth of the chamber, the mercury attained its limit, or ran down in the barometer, which, as I mentioned before, was one of an extended construction. It then indicated an altitude on my part of 132,000 feet. Or five and twenty miles. And I consequently surveyed at that time an extent of the earth's area amounting to no less than the three hundred and twentieth part of its entire superficies. At nine o'clock, I had again lost sight of land to the eastward, but not before I became aware that the balloon was drifting rapidly to the north northwest. The convexity of the ocean beneath me was very evident indeed although my view was often interrupted by the masses of cloud which floated to and fro. I observed now that even the lightest vapors never rose to more than 10 miles above the level of the sea. At half past nine, I tried the experiment of throwing out a handful of feathers through the valve. They did not float as I had expected, but dropped down perpendicularly like a bullet, en masse and with the greatest velocity, being out of sight in a very few seconds. I did not at first know what to make of this extraordinary phenomenon, not being able to believe that my rate of ascent had, of a sudden, met with so prodigious an acceleration. But it soon occurred to me that the atmosphere was now far too rare to sustain even the feathers, that they actually fell, as they appeared to do, with great rapidity, and that I had been surprised by the united velocities of their descent and my own elevation. By 10 o'clock I found that I had very little to occupy my immediate attention. Affairs went swimmingly and I believed the balloon to be going upward with the speed increasing momently although I had no longer any means of ascertaining the progression of the increase. I suffered no pain or uneasiness of any kind and enjoyed better spirits than I had at any period since my departure from Rotterdam busying myself now in examining the state of my various apparatus, and now in regenerating the atmosphere within the chamber. This latter point I determined to attend to at regular intervals of 40 minutes, more on account of the preservation of my health than from so frequent a renovation being absolutely necessary. In the meanwhile, I could not help making anticipations. Fancy reveled in the wild and dreamy regions of the moon. imagination feeling herself for once unshackled, roamed at will among the ever-changing wonders of a shadowy and unstable land. Now there were hoary and time-honored forests and craggy precipices, and waterfalls tumbling with a loud noise into abysses without a bottom. Then I came suddenly into still noonday solitudes, where no wind of heaven ever intruded, and where vast meadows of poppies and slender lily-looking flowers spread themselves out a weary distance, all silent and motionless forever. Then again I journeyed far down away into another country where it was all one dim and vague lake with a boundary line of clouds, and out of this melancholy water arose a forest of tall eastern trees like a wilderness of dreams and I have in mind that the shadows of the trees which fell upon the lake remained not on the surface where they fell, but sunk slowly and steadily down, and commingled with the waves, while from the trunks of the trees other shadows were continually coming out, and taking the place of their brothers, thus entombed. This, then, I said thoughtfully, is the very reason why the waters of this lake grow blacker with age and more melancholy as the hours run on. But fancies such as these were not the sole possessors of my brain. Horrors of a nature most stern and most appalling would too frequently obtrude themselves upon my mind and shake the innermost depths of my soul with the bare supposition of their possibility. Yet I would not suffer my thoughts for any length of time to dwell upon these latter speculations rightly judging the real and palpable dangers of the voyage sufficient for my undivided attention. At five o'clock p.m., being engaged in regenerating the atmosphere within the chamber, I took that opportunity of observing the cat and kittens through the valve. The cat herself appeared to suffer again very much and I had no hesitation in attributing her uneasiness chiefly to a difficulty in breathing. But my experiment with the kittens had resulted very strangely. I had expected, of course, to see them betray a sense of pain, although in a less degree than their mother, and this would have been sufficient to confirm my opinion concerning the habitual endurance of atmospheric pressure. But I was not prepared to find them, upon close examination, evidently enjoying a high degree of health, breathing with the greatest ease and perfect regularity, and evincing not the slightest sign of any uneasiness whatever. I could only account for all this by extending my theory and supposing that the highly rarefied atmosphere around might perhaps not be, as I had taken for granted, chemically insufficient for the purposes of life, and that a person born in such a medium might, possibly, be unaware of any inconvenience attending its inhalation, while, upon removal to the denser strata near the earth he might endure tortures of a similar nature to those I had so lately experienced. It has since been to me a matter of deep regret that an awkward accident, at this time, occasioned me the loss of my little family of cats, and deprived me of the insight into this matter which a continued experiment might have afforded. In passing my hand through the valve with a cup of water for the old puss, the sleeves of my shirt became entangled in the loop which sustained the basket, and thus, in a moment, loosened it from the bottom. Had the hole actually vanished into air, it could not have shot from my sight in a more abrupt and instantaneous manner. Positively, there could not have intervened the 10th part of a second between the disengagement of the basket and its absolute and total disappearance with all that it contained. My good wishes followed it to the earth. But of course, I had no hope that either cat or kittens would ever live to tell the tale of their misfortune. End of The Unparalleled Adventures of One Hans Fall, Part Two.